Hi, I'm Sharon Pearson. Welcome to Perspectives. If you're joining the show, make sure to like, comment and subscribe. You can follow me on Instagram at sharon.pearson.official. You can send us an email to perspectives at sharonpearson.com. Love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy this week's episode brought to you by The Ultimate You Book, available online and in bookstores. And here's the show. Hey, it's so great that you're here today with us on Perspectives. I'm Sharon Pearson. We're here today with Rebecca Huntley. It's so great that you're joining us today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me, Sharon. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So if you could introduce yourself to our viewers a little bit, so a little bit about your background and what it is you're thinking about currently. Well, I'm a social researcher by training, but I also do a bit of writing, a bit of speaking and broadcasting. And in over the last two years, I've had a particular interest in how uh, human beings and communities are responding to the issue of climate change. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. I've read your book, my well doggy. <laughs> so your book is how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference. And the reason I got intrigued by the book when I saw it, it's not usually the type of book, a book on climate change. I've got two, I think in my entire ridiculous library, <laughs> but your book intrigued me because you're taking a different perspective. You're not, you don't talk about all the facts and figures around it. Um, you talk more about the psychology of why a problem that is medium term, I can't even call it long term anymore, yeah. can be pushed aside in the psyche of our minds. Last night, I watched a show with my husband called, it was the one about the, um, it, the current war about Edison and the creator of Electric Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what went on in the 1890s and he was considered the genius of his time tesla was there as well westinghouse these incredible brains hmm. and i wonder if they ever could have foreseen that 130 years later with so much electricity powered by coal they could ever have foreseen we'd be questioning all of it they created something that was incredible that changed the planet that made every major invention since then other in the field of medicine possible their breakthroughs transformed our entire experience of what it means what hours we can work how we experience each other how we communicate right now on zoom transform the planet but right now we've got to work out the price we're paying for it is too high and i find that incredible juxtaposition hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think it would have been difficult for them to imagine that their inventions would go quite as far as they have, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's a fantastic thing about human beings. I mean, I'm as excited about renewable energy and the opportunities of renewable energy as people would have been when they saw the light bulb happen, or yes. you know, yes. or yes. our yes. ability yes. to be able absolutely. So, so in a sense they set off a chain reaction that they couldn't have foreseen but really all they were looking for is trying to make people's lives better and make some money into the bargain yes, <laughs> so is. i kind of look back on that and think well that's really kind of where we are with renewable energy today um i think you know one thing that's really really interesting to me is that the promise of that early electrification that happened so long ago hasn't necessarily been completely shared throughout the world. There's places in the world that don't have electricity. True. But one of the exciting things about renewable energy is that you can put it anywhere. So there are places that have where, you know, um, the inventions of Edison and Alexander Graham Bell have barely touched, but these are places that have solar microgrids that are able to do all kinds of things in terms of renewable energy so in a sense renewable energy is as exciting if not more exciting yeah that's and a really great point and exactly and potentially i mean look who knows you know in the next 50 years what, what will be some of the downsides of renewable energy i mean a lot of people point to the fact that you know we need to make sure that the materials with which we make solar panels and all the rest of it can be recycled and reused. You know, renewable yeah. energy doesn't 
let us off the hook when we think about our connection to the earth, how much we really need. Do we need massive houses and overseas trips five times a year? So we, it doesn't let us off the hook in thinking about what kind of life can we live and what kind mm. of, how, how, how do we tread upon this earth and treat resources with other people? But like I said, you know, I, I kind of see those early moments that you were talking about of, of the invention of electricity, I see some really interesting parallels of, in terms of where we are now. Yes, definitely. There was a quote in your book, Rebecca, that I that I wrote down twice, because it really, I'm, I'm going to pronounce the man's name wrong, Espen Stolness. Yeah, ex Espen Stokness. So he's a um, he Scandinavian. Um, yes. And he said, the greatest science communication fell in history. That's how he describes the failure to communicate the importance of what's happening in climate change. So our viewers, can we just give them a snapshot? I've done some facts and figures myself. Why are we having this conversation? Why does it matter that <laughs> we shift people's attitudes, perceptions, actions when it comes to climate change? Because it's so easy to kick it down the road. No, it is really easy to kick it down the road. And in a sense, Perhaps in Stokeness, who's a fantastic Scandinavian kind of um, academic and also parliamentarian for the Greens Party um, uh, in his home country. I mean, in a sense, he's right. You know, the, 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 the level of threat that climate change poses to everybody on the planet is, has been proven by science to the greatest degree it can be proven. Um, and so the fact that we're not all thinking about it, centering our lives on it, governments aren't, all governments of all types aren't taking it seriously, does seem like a bit of a disconnect. But that being said, and, and he acknowledges this in the work that he does and all good climate change communicators and, um, and experts in communication acknowledge it as well. There's something about the nature of climate change that makes it very different to a world war to an extreme weather event or even to a pandemic you know at the moment when you go out like if I, I just went out this morning and people were wearing masks and I couldn't go into any shop without hand sanitizer and all these other kinds of things that these are daily triggers that remind me that I'm in a pandemic that there's that everything in our society has changed as a result of it and I need to be careful and I need to modify my mm -hmm. decisions about life according to the pandemic. So that's about social cues, but it's also about government rules. With climate change, that doesn't exist, right? We can't see the buildup of CO2. I mean, we can hear about it from yes. people in the CSIRO and experts, but we can't see it build up. And even when we see um, signs of climate change, it's very easy for us to kind of justify that in our minds and say, oh, maybe it's natural or maybe that maybe that is maybe that bushfire isn't connected to climate change or maybe, you know, oh, like it's a cold, it's a it's a really cold day in winter, it should be fine. So we do a lot of things to kind of, whether this is part of cognitive bias or just actually out of just getting through the day, of pushing away in our minds the fact that this is a crisis. So it just doesn't have the kind of immediate um, threat that gives us the fight or flight instinct that makes us act. It's and not it, and we like don't a crisis, have so I don't have to act like exactly. a crisis. No, that's right. And that and the and because of that, because of the very nature of the crisis of climate change, it makes it even more important that our leaders are able to articulate to people clearly that even though this is a threat they can't see, it's a threat they have to take seriously. So without effective leadership on more than any other issue that faces us, without effective leadership on climate change, it makes it so hard to keep for people to really connect it to their lives. Mm. And as a result, a lot of us say, oh, it's happening, we're contributing to it, but it's a problem in the future or it's not going to be that bad. Exactly, exactly. I'm, I've got to keep a cup. It's all going to be fine. So yeah, I, 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 I totally get that. Yeah. Let's just talk about the real basics of the facts. So I, I've yeah. done research. So correct me where I'm going wrong. Just no, so no, you, because I know many people who don't know why climate change is an issue. Right. Yeah. And they see a sunny day and it's enough to say, what do you mean climate change? Or it's a very cold day or unseasonably cold. What do you mean climate change? 
That is a very easy equation, a lot easier than that weather is different to climate. So exactly. just some basic facts and we can share the conversation. We don't want our temperature to go above, increase any more than two degrees Celsius from where it is now. Yeah. That is the tipping point. Most scientists, like 97 to 99% of scientists around the world agree. And these numbers have been stable, Rebecca, since the 1970s. Yes. That yeah. is the same message now for 50 years. A two degree increase Celsius in our te average temperature is the tipping point in terms of surge seas, which means uh, oceans rise and a bad weather is going to come more yeah. than just against the beach. It's going to come into the roads and then into the suburbs. More than 50% of the world's population is living currently in places near the ocean, within 50 kilometers or miles of the, sorry, miles of the ocean, they're at risk. Bangladesh, parts of Miami would probably be one of the first places to go as well yep. as many islands. Yeah. That, and this is the bit that absolutely captured me. I can't remember if it was in your book or another book I read, and it just alarmed me so much, was that with what's melting, the ice caps melting, you can't switch off the melting. And the science explains it, I think, this way. That as the ice melts and retreats, the sun is hitting oceans, which is warmer than hitting ice, because ice acts as a reflector. Yep. Whereas oceans don't act as a reflector, which accelerates and becomes a self-perpetuating retreat of the ice caps. As that happens faster and faster, our ability to do anything about it is diminishing ever greater, which is the moment I reached overwhelm and for a glass of red wine. Yeah, good. <laughs> it seems the appropriate response. Hmm. Add to that, this is the bit that really gets me. Because we can't reverse it, all we can do now is try to shore up the damage we've done. Yes. We're past prevention. Yeah. We're now into, and the other piece that I read, and again, I can't remember if it was your book, I apologise, that when the ice caps first came over, that was the first ever, that was 10,000 years ago, the first stabilisation of weather patterns and yeah. what is called climate, which resulted in industrialization. We got to where we are because of stable climate. Yeah. In the last 100 years, there has been more instability in the climate than in any other time in the last 10,000 years. We're accelerating the climate instability. With yeah. climate instability, we have more arid lands. We have less potable water. We have less land we can farm. We have less reliable sources of living near the ocean because the ocean is no longer acting the way it's meant to or we expect it to act. That's where we're heading in the next 20 or so years. Yeah. How have I done? You've done extremely well. And, and, and in listening to you, I suppose one of the things that that constantly strikes me about the way that climate change is often communicated to people is we talk about, oh, well, we can't have more than an average two degrees increase. And I think a lot of people think, what's two degrees? You know, it seems very small. Yeah. But the rest of your story is a far more important story just to, to tell, although you don't want to scare the pants off people too much. Well, but I it's, it's, it's already turned off. I no, really, exactly. That's I exactly like, right. I totally understand what I just said. <laughs> is a real downer. No, it is it because it's not so much a, a world in which there's a steady increase in temperature. It's a world of complete and total climate unpredictability. And we know from history that in, in times of complete and total climate unpredictability, societies that are already under pressure find it very hard to adapt. So, so even, if, even if we could just keep it at two degrees, there are consequences of famine and of people being displaced. There are consequences to culture, to society, to, uh, to government. You know, will climate change, there's a lot of work about the, the role that climate change will play in driving anti-democratic and fascist and totalitarian and authoritarian governments. Why is that? Because what happens, well, what happens when, I mean, think about it, what happens when a society when something terrible happens like like a, a terrible um you know terrible kind of well you can see it now pandemic is that sometimes you have to suspend civil liberties 
And yeah. sometimes you have to declare a state of emergency and say yeah. that people can't gather. So, it, it, and you do that at the moment, we're doing it to keep people safe. But it is absolutely clear that societies that are under incredible amount of pressure in terms of lack of food and all the rest of it, and this violence can happen, then you have the military and you have other kinds of totalitarian regimes step in. So it is about the weather, but it's also about us. How do we respond to extreme situations where there's vol you know, volatile weather, lack of resources, um, and we can see we're lucky in Australia right now with the pandemic that we are a reasonably affluent society, that people who are fighting over toilet paper and getting angry in Bunnings about masks are the tiny minority, even they get a lot of media attention. But we're all still, we're all still kind of, you know, um, you know, basically sheltered and fed. But we also know that the most, the most um, vulnerable people in our society are the first hit. And then when it starts to hit people who aren't so used to being vulnerable you know so you can see that it's a recipe mm. potentially for disaster for disaster like actual human disaster as well as um uh you know extreme weather events so the point that you make about you know the point you make about not so much stopping this happening as slowing it down the other thing that is really clear is that we have to think about what are the human characteristics and what are the societal and community um, strengths that we have to ensure that we can still remain a livable, tolerant um, and happy society as we face this, as we face this future. And so for me, it's about what is it, is, how do we strengthen our social, not just our economic capital, but our social capital and how individually do we support each other to make sure that when these things happen, we don't turn on each other, we turn to each other to be mm. able to adapt and to be able to build resilience. That's interesting. So I I love your optimism around how we've handled the pandemic so far. <laughs> yeah, so far we're all well, you're more in it, you're in you're in Melbourne, you're more in it than me. I'm in Sydney. But it could come to Sydney at any stage, as all good things. Good coffee came to Sydney after it came to Melbourne, I think. You yeah. Know, that's the, that's I, the way it goes. I, I don't think we've handled our shit at all well during this. I, when I look around the world, America, which is a huge contributor to global warming or climate change, their ineffectiveness in the face of this pandemic to me is completely metaphorical and a, Absolutely. a telling substitute for how they're handling climate change. No, 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 absolutely right. I would, I would, not all countries have handled this well. We've yeah. handled it better than most, yeah. but we're still, we, we will, we may not, we may not be having that same conversation in six months time, Sharon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it gets worse. Yeah. Well, because the moment our Premier announced here in our state, the potential, I don't know why he said this, of food shortages, he only had to mention it was a possibility and there were queues going round the blocks, stripping shelves there. Yes. It took one mention and one misspeak, one moment, and that's, and that was just the thought of it may happening down the track. Absolutely. And it caused that level of panic. And I believe quite rightly, if the leader starts talking about food shortages, you should get food in for your family yeah. and feel protected. And, take care of old people who aren't going to be able to get to the shops every day. And if it's not there, they don't get another shot at it because you're only yeah. once a day. One mention caused that. I don't really trust that we're geared to handle it being true. Yeah. Look, I think, I think, I think the power of social cues for good or bad is absolutely, um, is one of those things that is has been proven time and again. So at the very early stages of the pandemic, um, when people were stripping toilet paper, it was one of those things where all you need to do is get a couple of people starting to hoard toilet paper. Other people start thinking, oh no, I need to start, even, even well-meaning people need to think, yeah. think, oh, maybe I should buy more toilet paper than I normally would. And this is where leadership is absolutely critical. And of course, the retailers did start to step in and say, well, actually, we're not going to allow you to hoard toilet paper. You can't buy it. You know, so there was there were ways that you can then step in and say, no, this is not okay. And then you, I think you had some some leaders 
perhaps um, underestimate the extent to which that might happen. So it took a while for people to say, look, there's plenty of toilet paper in Australia you do not have to hoard. Yeah. Um, so there were some of those. It, so it's not actually possible to run out of it. So No, that's exactly right. And a lot of it's made in Australia. <laughs> and a lot of it's made in Australia. I mean, interestingly, I had a really interesting conversation with my mum my about that. And she remembers in the end of the Second World War, they just got really good at ripping up pieces of newspaper. And, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, people kind of went back to times where, where they had to kind of really deal with deprivation. So, I mean, the Premier making a, a point about food shortages and, you know, this is, he's, he's getting up doing a very, very long press conference every day. He must be utterly exhausted watching these numbers mm. go up and watching him have to handle what is clearly the, the hardest possible um, jurisdiction in the whole of Australia around COVID. You know, a slip of the tongue kind of sends people off. But of course, everybody's on really, really high alert. As you would yes. know, I'm sure. Which I don't is know. My point. You're being so optimistic about how we're going to handle. I've been, and I'm saying I'm not seeing evidence of us really being at a roll with this. We are on yeah. high alert, and we keep going to another level of high alert and anticipating the worst. We. This is really based on science, the psychological bias of negativity yeah. bias. We are geared for the negativity. That is our natural way to protect ourselves from Yeah, absolutely. It could be bad. No, I I am it, I don't think that right at this moment we have all the tools and the strength in our society to handle climate change. Um, when it really starts to bite in about 10 to 15 years or however the scientists project it, which is why I wanted to write about this book to talk about what we need to do to get yeah. prepared. Yes. How we talk to the people around us, how yeah. we really put it on our elected representatives and say, we know that all you really care about is whether you're going to get re-elected in two years, but you have a moral obligation to do something as a group to protect us for the next 10 to 15. So there is so much so much work that needs to be done. And Sharon, this is why I kind of moved my entire personal and professional focus towards climate change about two years ago, when I really connected what needs to happen with climate change for preparing my children for the future that they face. You know, I spent years getting them to brush their teeth and, <laughs> and you know, learn how to swim and do their times tables and, you know, yeah. think about how they're going to do their HSC and make sure that I've got enough savings to help them get into a house. And then I realised, well, 10 years, 10, 15 years, I have a responsibility as a parent to do whatever I can to ensure there's an actual livable world for these children who've got good teeth and know how to swim and know how to do their times tables. So I, you're right, I am, if I was completely optimistic about, about our ability to handle the pressure that climate change is going to put our society on, I probably would be doing something else, but I don't. I believe we have the technological tools and I'm super excited about them. Yeah. Do we have the, econo do we have the economic, political, social capital? Do we have the emotional resilience? Do we have the strong community ties? Do we have that sense that we live in a society that values its natural environment, values that everybody's life? No, 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 I don't think that we do. Right at this moment, and we can look at what's happening in with um, the ice caps melting and we can look at places like Bangladesh, but we don't have to look very far. We can look at the Torres Strait falling into the sea mm -hmm. and, a, and a continuous culture of tens of thousands of years mm -hmm. being threatened. That's happening right now on our doorstep. So you're right, I have a lot of anxiety. <laughs> um, I'm an optimistic person. Yeah. I'm, I'm an optimistic person just by nature. Mm -hmm. and But I also feel that I have a moral obligation to remain optimistic while there's a chance, mm. a time, a time, a, a chance and an opportunity to start to do some things. Yeah. One of the ways I looked at it, I'm not seeing government leaders get behind this. I've looked at the train wreck of Queensland and how the Labor movement is not united, the right and left factions within Australia, within the Labor Party. I was just reading about yeah. it today, can't get a consensus and they're very, very torn ideologically about they want to be against coal, which powers electricity, which is contributing 
to carbon dioxide, but at the same time, they're not winning any of Queensland's seats. So there's an ideological, that to me is very symbolic of what's going on around the world. The political will is really difficult to ask them to have the political will to make decisions today that are invisible to us yeah. when we're so living in short-term gains and the immediacy of the moment. To have the political will, knowing you're pretty well gonna be trading away your seat if you fight for this, I understand why a politician yeah. isn't leaping into the breach. Yeah. I suspect a stronger lever has to be through businesses. I did some research for our conversation. There are the largest investing group in the world, BlackRock. It, it controls trillions of US dollars, is now behind climate change initiatives, looking at getting emissions down, insisting that who they invest in, which is hundreds of companies, have an emissions policy. That's got to be the lever. It's through shareholder advocacy and through insisting that they have some form of carbon emission management. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So I think um, that was a very exciting movement. And if we don't have to look to BlackRock, um, we can look more locally in Australia. So recently, one of Australia's biggest super funds controls billions of dollars, of yeah. millions and millions of dollars of uh, money. Um, First State Super made a very similar commitment than yeah. BlackRock to in terms yeah. of their investment mix. Um, so, look, there's been various parts of the of business and investor groups and big money globally and in Australia that are realising that the clock is ticking on fossil fuels. So we think about every other part of the of um, of our economy other than fossil fuels have made this move, including the insurance industry, who have yeah. spoken out quite strongly about this and talked about the risks in creating an uninsurable world, which is what we're doing. I mean, the interesting thing about some businesses is that some businesses are forced to think in five and 10 and 15 year strategies, but particularly invest, particularly super funds, because they've got, yeah. they're looking not just in returns in the next year, they're looking returns in decades, insurance industries and other examples. So there's lots of that. I mean, we are at a point where there have to be levers from all points of, from every, every mm. part of our society. So previously people say, is it government, is it business? And I'm like, it's everything, but clearly, more it's more that the political class need to be dragged to the table with some certainty that there isn't going to be electoral backlash if they take a strong stand now i would say that what well, queensland is its own <laughs> case study but let's look for a moment at south australia the south australia moves rapidly towards renewables under a labor government under premier jay weatherall and has continued that path under a liberal government mm. and um and is doing some quite extraordinary things because it just realizes that it's the future of, of South Australia, the economic future and the energy future is not in mining. There's huge opportunities, not in, not in fossil fuels. It's, it, it can be in mining for renewable energy. Mm. And so there's some extraordinary things happening in South Australia when you don't really pay a electoral penalty for being pro-renewable energy in South Australia. Um, and there are, and in the ACT, but, is another example. So what the problem what we the problem that we have is particularly for national governments, national governments have to win seats in Queensland to win, they can get the rest of the country excited yeah. about renewable energy projects and moving yeah. away from coal and gas, at least domestically, but they have to win Queensland. So there are some real difficulties, there are some hurdles um, in Australian politics that are significant. The most exciting thing that I see is not is when we have brave and I think really committed um, conservative politicians stand up for climate. We've had that in New South Wales with our environmental minister, Matt Cain. And then you have somebody like Zali Stegall, who's definitely kind of more conservative, economically conservative, but on climate fantastic and is able to get, you know, a blue blood, um, blue ribbon seat away from a climate denier. And so things like that happen, which give me a little bit of confidence, but it has to happen. Like we have to scale this up enormously um, to be able to make that change in the time that we've got. I really, I read your book really thoroughly. I read it twice. And then I read a couple of other books on it, just thinking about, okay, so what is the impediment here? 
And I'm just going to, I'm going to start with the punchline and then make my way backwards and you <laughs> how I got sure. to this. Yeah. What I'm about to say, I'm going to say Trump. Right. My punchline's Trump. Now stay with me. Okay, I am. I'm staying. That's always an interesting way to start a conversation. Yeah. I'm going to say Trump. Perceived as the most powerful seat in the, in the world. Yeah. Incredibly weak on climate change, has quit the Paris Agreement only recently, is dropping environmental standards and government regulations, getting rid of green tape, is creating a permission for businesses to not have to fight for global emission reductions. So I see that as a major issue. That political will has to be filtering through how the G7 meet. It has to be filtering through the conversations they have. If you're literally sitting at the table with this leader having to argue about whether or not it exists yeah. as a problem, you're not even dealing with what you're going to do about it. So I see that as a major impediment, the, the nature of that political leader. That's a poor use of word, political person. Yeah. So I looked at businesses. So I was doing research. Businesses have done the maths, Rebecca. They're realizing that the cost is trillions of dollars on economies and on their businesses if they aren't proactive now with global emissions. Yeah. They're taking it out of the hands of political representatives. In so many examples I found, it's not fantastic. It's less than half of but they also formed this group. Did you hear about this group they formed, the Climate Action 100 group? Yep. There's, uh, Santos and Woodside are literally starting yep. to get behind it. Yeah, yeah. These are major contributors to the problem. Now they want to be a contributor to the solution. Yep. That's where I got excited. because No, 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 they're absolutely right. I'm seeing political inertia. I'm seeing people scrambling for the seat mm. by 10 votes instead yep. of scrambling for us. Business has done the maths. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so, so what is so? I mean, it was in. I was reading some um, data from the United States that said that more coal mines have been shut down or um, under Donald Trump than under the entire, you know, under yeah. Barack Obama. And obviously, Barack Obama would have had it did have better climate policies, although he struggled in that area. So there's a kind of an inevitable move, but it's not fast enough. And, right. and the problem is, is we do need government. So I'll give you an example, again, an Australian-based example. Oh, hang on. We need government. Yeah, let, let me make my point. Sorry, yeah, I didn't make myself clear. No, no. Business is, is made up of people who is creating the pressure yeah. on government. I'm yeah. saying if we can support businesses and not shame them, blame them. Absolutely. Which you don't do. That's one of the reasons why I want to speak with you, because... I have seen environmentalists engage in the blaming and the shaming game. Oh, yeah. It's not effective. It, no, no, no. Just turns people off. It turns people off. Why would I listen to you if you're just going to condemn me and hate me? So that's why I want to speak to you because if we can get them on board and they are coming on board and doing the mess, they will help create the political will because they're going to be the lobbyists. No, that's absolutely right. And, that, and there may be a point where they go, well, I'm just not going to donate to your campaigns anymore unless yes. you do something serious about this. And in yes. the end... All other parts of the business community outside um, coal and gas can contribute more to politics in terms of its actual financial donations than coal and gas. So you're right. Um, look, I think I think that that is that kind of pressure from all different kinds of business, all different kinds of civil society. I mean, even I love this example. I remember last year I met somebody who was um, very high up in tennis Australia and they were doing something really, they were doing a lot on climate change because they actually felt that their sport was going to be threatened by bad. So like they were saying, look, whether it's bushfires and people or whether it's so hot that people don't want to play the sport anymore outside as it was originally meant to be played, we need to take a stand on climate change. So you see all these kinds of different organisations as part of our society as well as business standing up and saying this matters this is relevant this is important now and into the future and it's really about getting not all politicians because some get it right even in the mm. major political oh, parties that wasn't a blanket 
No, absolutely. It, it's the it's the individual. There are individual roadblocks in every single party making that difficult, yeah. and the very nature of the way that um, mm. politics works in Australia. And and then you've got the acceler the amplification of certain parts of the media constantly mm. saying, "Oh, the science isn't settled. It isn't so. You know, it's not so bad. And this is radical. And any action on climate change will destroy the economy." And you think, well, Should really, we say the name Murdoch. Because if, if, if you go, if you reverse engineer how these decisions are made, it's Murdoch and it's these leaders uh, owning the media, which is shaping the narrative. Yeah, there's definitely a, a kind of, to use a very overused word, synergy there that that is um, significant. And of course, you know, they're giving voice to a view about climate change, which is a an absolute minority view in the Australian community. Like, all every survey I've ever conducted or seen on attitudes to climate change put people who deny climate change or think that it's not a, like a threat at all in the single digits. All mm. the rest of us worry, believe it's true, believe it's a threat. We might push it out a bit, but mm. very few of us are of that view that this is just all going to be fine. And isn't it going to be great that we'll have slightly higher temperatures so that we can grow um, different kinds of wine grapes in Tasmania and it'll all be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my concerns about the environmental movement, Rebecca, is, and I haven't had a huge mental, I reckon I'm a regular person when it comes to environmental movements. I'm a regular person, I get the regular news, social media is siloed, so I'm getting regular information. Yeah. I, my concern as someone who's outside of the movement, but paying attention, thinking, yeah. what should I know about it? I feel judged. Yeah. I feel judged. I feel condemned. I feel that I'm part of the problem. I literally had a young person say to me the other day, we don't care about the pandemic killing old people because you killed the planet. Yes. Said to my it's face. not an either or thing. We want it was said it's to my not face. an either or thing, but anyway. And it's wow. not saying every environmentalist. Dude, and where did you meet this person? Where yeah. did you meet this person? <laughs> that was literally, so I said, so let me get clear. And I repeated it back and they confirmed it. Wow. That because we effed up the planet, they don't care if it kills old people. Do you mean? Yeah. Well, um, that's not productive or helpful at all. And it just creates this div division because the wealth is held right now by boomers and the next generation after that. And so, and I'm not saying that is representative at all. It was just an example, but I do see, and this isn't speaking on behalf of every environment, include every disclaimer here, yeah, yeah. but where there is blame and shame, it's not turning people onto wanting to be a part of it. Being yelled at is not the way to win my heart. And your book talks about, there are other ways to do it. So can you share with us how you would approach this given the cognitive dissonance that we all face, the negativity bias, all of what we're needing to overcome. You talk, speak about many biases. What are the solutions here in an yes. environment that is siloed, that is politicized, where yep. environment has been weaponized, where hearing yep. what is true without being yelled at can be a challenge what's the path through this how do we have yeah. it so it's a reasoned scientific conversation that shifts minds and actions yeah i mean i i think that i felt my book was just beginning to try and understand get to groups yes. with this kind of thing it was a whole book so i'm um, just just kind of springboarding off some of the things you've just said and what what it sparked in my mind i suppose the first thing that i always instinctively felt even before i started looking at the book is that while i think it is really important that we're all aware of the individual decisions that we make in our day-to-day -day life like whether we use a plastic bottle or whether we get a bring a keeper cup or whether we you know drive to work or cycle to work well those are all really important things um and can collectively bring about a shift when you start to make the 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 kind of saving the world comes down to whether I remember my keeper cup and when the people look at you and go, oh my God, you've got a disposable coffee cup. When you start to, to do those kinds of things and make it about just my individual decisions, 
you're really not getting a sense of where the responsibility lies. We all try and do our best. None of us are perfect. And finger pointing about not being the absolute perfect kind of green consumer is not going to be helpful. In fact, it's going to turn people away from environmentalism because they think that the price is too high. Yeah. And interest, you'll be interested in this. In the research that we do, we find that the group in Australia that are most disengaged from the climate issue are disproportionately women on low incomes that are kind of renting, working part-time and looking after kids. Mm. And it's not that those women don't care because I know those women, I meet those women, um, they do care. They're just overwhelmed. And if mm. you say to care about climate change means buying all these products and being a vegan and doing all these kinds of things, they're already just struggling, right? Mm -hmm. How is it that they're responsible <laughs> for saving the, the planet and the earth? And why would you continue to shame them when they already are under an enormous amount of stress. So I, I think that think shaming has much of a place, truly. No, it almost has no place, no, no place whatsoever. In fact, the only people we really should be trying to shame are the politicians that are stopping, that are actively stopping progress yeah. on renewable energy for their own, for their, those are the only people, and that's a tiny group of people. They could fit yeah. in this apartment, the people yeah. that we should shame. There is a sense of how you try and tap into people's sense of responsibility. So there is a sense, you know, so, so getting people to understand as a collective that we're responsible for the earth that we live on and how we leave it when we leave is mm. important. But responsibility is not the same as crushing guilt and shame. We do need to give people a sense of the connection between mm. how we live our lives and the consequences. And then we need to move very quickly to effective action like what can you do about it and how can you work to save the things that you love about the life that you live and the place that you live and and get and and to retain the things that you love stop too much of the loss of the things that you love and build some build a livable future so i think that in fact as you know because you've read my book twice which is more than anybody i know well, more, than my, more than any of my friends and I'm scared to open it in case I find a typo. So but I have one. Only oh, one. Don't tell me with it. Don't no, tell no, me. I didn't find any. <laughs> um, I think that of all the emotions that I work through in the book, and all of them have their role, you know, mm. it's fear, um, anger, all of them have their role, even if it's very constrained. Guilt and shame were, I thought, the ones that are the kind of most destructive. Mm. And, and what it does is it positions environmentalists, I consider myself to be one, to be really kind of judgy, mm. nasty, annoying people who are constantly going to tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. Who wants to hang out with those people? Well, you no said one. it in the book. You <laughs> said you come across as too woke. It turns people off. Because yeah, it, just, it really does. It, quite rightly, because you know that it's an emotion-based energy coming at you. So well, I don't need to deal with your emotions. I just don't have to. So yeah. I get that. I really yeah. deeply get that. But also, I don't think we can say we're going to transform the planet by excluding, shaming, guilting, and excluding people. No, no, no. no in that fact, shaming... the world I want to create. Yeah. So everything that we want to do is about engaging people engaging yeah. people in the issue in a way that makes it feel relevant and comfortable for them and getting them to do something. So not just engaging, but acting. Shaming and making people feel guilt and having understood that emotion, it's immediately one in which you turn inwards because it's an yeah. absolute threat and particularly shame because you can make people feel a bit guilty about behaviour, but it's focused on the behaviour. There's a difference between... The, but, but shame is about saying you're a bad person. Yes. And you learn this, I don't know, you've learned this very early on. I remember reading this very early on when I had my first daughter about the difference when they do something wrong between criticising the behaviour and criticising yeah. the child. Yes. So let's say they do do something crazy. Instead of saying, you're stupid for doing it, you go, that was, that was a silly thing you did or that was a dangerous yeah. thing. So you make yeah. a distinction between the behaviour and the person. Mm. We need to do the same in climate communications. Yes, we absolutely do. We have to, we cannot be pointing fingers at people and saying you're a bad person for working in the coal and fossil fuel industry. Like, mm -hmm. And there's lots of people who work there because those are the jobs that they get to sustain their families. Or you're a bad person because you don't have solar panels. Um, so yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that 
um, you know, there are really, really good people in the environment movement that I work with that understand that and understand that that's just not the way to go. Um, so how do we do it? How do we do? How, how do we win people over? I can go to the page in the book if you like. The solutions. <laughs> yeah, there's a solutions chapter. Page, my eyes are a little really... faded, but page 235 in the yes. book. <laughs> but honestly, Sean, it was really, it was, it, that was a really difficult chapter to write mm. because part of what I learned from writing the book is there are some general principles and there are some certainly some things that we know backfire. But to talk about climate change requires very much an adaptation of who you are and how you talk and who you're talking to. So this kind of idea that there's one argument that's going to win everybody over mm. is just not correct. And that, and very early on in the book, I talk about, you know, the, the kind of climate change script about what's happening. Mm. You put that in front of different people. Some people will get scared and some people will go, oh my God, this is serious. And they'll get like, I want to do something. So different people respond to the same story and what does that mean it means that we've got to find lots and lots of different ways to tell the climate story to engage and um to engage people in it but and there are some basis of of violent weather changes apparently don't work it causes a feeling of helplessness powerlessness yes. and hopelessness within people i found that very interesting no that's absolutely right and but image they, I mean, certainly for people who are already alarmed, they can make people go, okay, this is serious. But often sometimes the things that can make people more engaged are people rebuilding a world out, you know, rebuilding their communities after an event like that in a way that make that is climate positive, you know. So there is that sense of rebuilding out of disaster. It's like you don't pretend the disaster didn't happen, but you show that communities of goodwill can come together and rebuild afterwards. So, I mean, I, I suppose, and this kind of reflects my bias as a social researcher, I always think that the first thing you want to do is listen to why somebody feels the way they do about climate change. So I so I start with saying, oh, oh, you know, so if they start saying, oh, climate change is bullshit, I go, oh, why do you think that? And, you know, where did you get those views? And like, not in a very kind of like, where did you get those views? I'm just genuinely interested and mm. often, I'm looking for what are the things that turn people off from the climate mm. conversation? Is it because it seems too extreme? Is it because they they feel like they're being blamed, shamed, condescended mm. to, lectured to? Is it because, in fact, they come from a family that all worked in the fossil fuel industry? Is it that they're really, really worried about the state of the economy and they've, we can't, they feel that that's risky to go towards mm. renewable energy? So... Um, so I'm always trying to work out why, where people come from and why in a really open and non-judgmental fashion. And then it's about really working out, you know, what's the best path towards what is essentially the same solution, regardless of how you feel about climate change, which is the move towards renewable energy, which is possible and exciting. And so part of that's about saying whether they feel differently about that. They might feel really, really negative about climate change, um, and in terms of not believing it's happening, they might have solar panels on their roof. <laughs> they might, you know, walk to work or they might cycle or they might maybe barely ever get on a plane. So I mean, in the end, you know, what we want to do is encourage behaviour that's good for the planet, even if people's views about climate change don't exactly align with, you know, all the scientific evidence. I'm very <sighs> pragmatic in terms of yeah, just getting everybody dramatic. to the, a point, however we can get them there. Yeah. Mm. When I was first picked up your book, I was nervous, Rebecca, that you were going to be overly emotional about it and literally be that idea I had in my mind that's not going to appeal to me. But you came across just so pragmatic about it and it's it made it very accessible to me who oh, doesn't see myself as part of that. So that yeah. was fantastic. I see things a little differently. You're, you're focusing on the individual, which I appreciate. Yeah. I see that we the idea is to get us individuals to focus on who we vote for and to demand those policies in government and to insist yeah. as shareholders or even just as how we I, I, I see the individual is going to feel hopeless and a little overwhelmed by the whole thing. That's right. So if you do face the science, it's shockingly dismal. It really yeah. is. It's quite overwhelmingly sad. 
where yeah. we're heading, especially in poorer countries that are going to get flooded in the next 15, 20 years. It's yeah. it's incomprehensible that that's coming, no matter what we do now. If we did 100% of everything we're meant to do today, yeah. that's still happening. Yeah. So I understand the ease in which we can go, that's too much. But individuals can have a voice. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing about democracy and the yeah. beautiful thing about capitalism. Whatever you say about democracy and capitalism, the two strengths they have is my shareholder vote does matter and yeah. I can put pressure on these companies yeah, yeah. and my vote in democracy completely matters. I can yeah. get my political leaders to care about this. We can, we're not a lobby group. That's the disappointing thing about individuals, Rebecca. We're not a lobby group like no, no, no. a coal industry yeah. or a car manufacturing industry or whatever the yeah, lobby yeah. groups are. So we somehow got to make it so individuals feel we're, con as you said, connected for the future of our planet in a positive way, an inclusive way, and have our vote and our pressure count. So yes. our leaders have to attend to us like a lobby group. That's where I got to as a result of your book and my research. Am I on the target? Of no, absolutely. And, and you know in that last, um, that all the way through in every sing almost every single chapter I talk about the extraordinary power, not just of storytelling, but of collective action. You know, yeah. as a way, as a way to count, a way to mobilise people, engage people, um, foster a kind of what I call sceptical hope, which is what we need, a kind of resolute hope, um, as, a, as an antidote to despair, but also as a way, you know, when people say, you know, should I write a letter to my local member of parliament? I go, you could do that, or you could look around at your parents' group or your sporting group or your professional organisation or your workplace and all 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 of you could demand a meeting with your member of parliament. That is going to be more effective. Groups of people coming in are scary. <laughs> and, and in the chapter that I write on love, I talk about the power of groups of bird watchers yeah. getting together, getting together, going to their, and this is a, 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 a kind of case study from the United States, of quite conservative bird watchers getting together to go to their electric representatives and saying, the more that you destroy the environment and the more that we increase temperatures around climate change, the less likely we are going to be able to bird watch. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know, but, but large groups of bird watchers are terrifying. <laughs> they've got their little, they are, they've got their little boots and they've got their binoculars, they're terrifying. <laughs> So I think that you're absolutely right. As much as we can vote, as much as we can do things like change the investment mix of our super fund, once even quite small, powerful groups come together, then that gives, that can really terrify um, politicians. One of the things that disappoints me is Elon Musk. I see him as the Edison of our times. And for him to put so much effort in getting to Mars because he thinks we've ruined here is a very poor message. I truly wish the Edison of our times, Elon Musk, would put his effort into renewables here rather than focus on how to get out of here. That's exactly the wrong message to send, that we need an alternative planet. We don't have a plan B. For leaders like him to put their energy, time, effort and money and voice into this planet, would make a much bigger dent in the challenge of trying to get some momentum going than what he's doing now. And I see that around the world when I think about celebrity leaders that we turn to who have inspired us in any way, in any forum. Mm -hmm. If their voice could be one bandwidth, as yep. you just spoken about, that would make a bigger difference. Celebrity endorsements are massive. Yeah. And we're making it too simplistic that if we could get our celebrity endorsers all facing that way, not on dumping every coal mine today. If anyone's hearing this thinking I'm a radical, I'm not suggesting that. There are ways. So what, one of the arguments they say is renewables are, too ex, are more expensive than coal. That is true. Until you add to the cost of coal, putting um, filters on them that make it so they don't release carbon dioxide, now the costs are starting to be comparable. Well, that doesn't come out in the media. They keep saying renewables are more expensive. Yeah. Well, to me, that would be the major message. Yeah. We're not looking to shut down every coal mine today, or well, perhaps you are, but I'm not. 
But at least could we look at like for like costs in terms of if this was truly cleaner energy and you didn't let carbon dioxide go into the air, what would the cost be? And also the third part of it is give me a renewable I can get behind. Right. Batteries create their own environmental problem. Nuclear has its own problems, besides the fact it'll take 20 years and more green and red tape than I can possibly think about building one, let yeah. alone the political will to build one. Give me a renewable that makes it easy for me, Rebecca. I'm not putting on you, I'm just saying to the world, <laughs> that makes it easy for me to make this decision to say that's the pathway forward. I don't feel it's there. Right. And I'm just speaking as a regular person who yeah, yeah. reads most of the articles on it. Um. Well, there's a lot in that. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I would certainly agree that that Elon Musk could be spending his time fast-tracking a much cheaper electric car than his yeah. Tesla cars. I mean, he is, that is in the pipeline, yes. but they're not, these electric cars aren't $35,000. So, you know, that would be a really good um, thing for him to do rather than go to Mars. I think that celebrity endorsements of climate change can be helpful, but like anything else, they can also backfire. So I think in the end, what we do is we need lots and lots of different voices. So the celebrities that we admire, the people in our life that we admire, the people who are in our profession who we admire. Um, so we need lots of different kinds of voices that speak to the different parts of our personality on climate change. I think that's absolutely true. I think that that there's, and a lot of my research now is getting people, understanding people's perceptions of renewables. So everybody, you know, generally agrees that they're the good way to go, but you know, how do they feel about what are, you know, what are the barriers and what are the downsides of potential of going quickly to 100% renewables in Australia? Um, there's a lot about, you're exactly right, about making sure that that the renewables that we have are also recyclable, also don't have their own environmental um, downsides. Yeah. But, you know, what I would say in terms of the cost of, you know, this kind of whole idea of that, you know, I want to shut down every coal mine tomorrow. There, I don't really, I don't have to do anything for that to happen. That's just kind of happening <laughs> anyway. Um, that's just, that's kind of a, you know, those mines are either getting too old, um, they don't have the social license to continue and renewables are just getting more and more and more effective and more and more efficient. Um, so, so much so that if you had said 10 years ago that we could really be thinking about hydrogen as an industry in Australia that was viable, nobody would have believed you because renewables just weren't, we just, just couldn't generate that amount of electricity and we can. So I think there's an enormous amount that can happen and this goes back to the capacity for human beings to be both incredibly destructive and amazingly inventive. Mm. So, it, and and so I have some faith that with the right um, investment minds, the right policy frameworks, that in the next five years there'll be stuff happening that will be like, oh, I can't even believe that that's happening. Um, oh yeah. So I think that, um, but I think to the point, to the point that you're trying to make. A lot of people don't understand that and a lot of people have a lot of question marks about what renewable renewables mean and what that can mean and whether it's while it's a good thing how might that I think the environmental out. movement has a pr issue absolutely definitely which is why people like me are getting more involved yeah. i'm just catching up i'm just yeah. recognizing it's a pr issue because everything i'm talking about is marketing absolutely a lot of it is about messaging and marketing and and this is this is where um the world of, you know, I started my time in commercial and market research for big FMCG and financial institutions and all the rest of it. And I'm taking that kind of knowledge and skill into the environment movement. And I'm not alone. There's lots of people in agency land and all the rest of it that are like, mm. and, and look, communicating about climate change and about the solutions to climate change is a, a massive marketing um challenge let's mm. not under it's not like selling people a new scotch finger biscuit no. it is really, it is really tough yeah. it's tougher well, now I than it's ever been I want the biscuit now but i don't exactly. know why i want renewable energy now exactly that's exactly right that's, exactly. The, that's the messaging issue yeah it's a massive challenge which is why it's both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Mm. <laughs> so i think we solved it we didn't have any red wine <laughs> 
We're right. Oh, well Elon done. Musk, we've done it. So we're going to get Elon Musk to get on board with solving the problem here and bringing his genius yeah. mind to the problem yeah. we've got rather than trying to create more problems there. We're going to get political will through action, acting locally. And getting Absolutely. the politicians to pay attention to it. We're going to let the coal mines fizzle out, which they are anyway. Did yeah. some research on that. They're slowly yeah. folding one after another. Get a really clear messaging on what an alternative source of renewable, clean, recyclable energy is that is like for like if you kept carbon emissions from coal mines would be the same cost yeah. comparatively. Yeah. Uh, how am I doing? I think You're doing extremely well. Yeah. <laughs> and and to not be yelled at if so if someone says they don't get it or they don't necessarily believe it to not have them jumped on but to have them greeted, welcomed, yeah. and to start Listen a dialogue to. and a conversation. Listen, yeah, start the dialogue. Screaming and shaming never started a conversation. That's no. Worth it. And and I'd like to add another solution to the mix. I think if MothersUnited.com became a thing, where every mother signed up and said i am joining on behalf of my children yeah that mothers united for planet earth.com something like that and literally one voice so billion voices became one voice that would matter yeah look there's some really interesting kind of mums for climate action parent uh, parent groups around climate action that are really effective around the world and I think, you know, what was really interesting to me in the recent fires um, was realising that all the things that I love doing with my children at the end of the year and that they look forward to, like the school picnic and the concert and, you know, and all the summer things that we would do with them, all of the school events were cancelled because of fires like they didn't get any of that stuff happening we spent some time outside but there were times where it was just it was literally too smoky and too hot a lot of their school sports that they love were cancelled and just realized you know this is affecting the way that I raise my kids so no you're absolutely right I think that kind of and for me I mean I'm a bit biased here because it was really my love for my kids and my sense of responsibility as a parent that led me to the climate movement and led me to climate change as an issue and has led me to um, commit myself to, you Good know, the you. rest of my life. Do you know, I even got a tattoo. I've never had a tattoo. I even got a tattoo. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a, it's, well, it's a, it's an S. It's the, it, but like all of my kids' name starts with S. So I thought I'm just going to get a tattoo of their initials in my hand as a reminder yeah. that I've just got, this is a fight I've got to stay in. Yeah, good on oh, yeah. you. It's Thank a very you, small tattoo, though. My, I, I haven't so told you my... haven't gone wild child on me. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I haven't told my mother that I got it as well, and she would never forgive me. <laughs> was speaking of mothers, of mothers and shame and guilt. I have not told there my mother that I've got a tattoo <laughs> because she would be very. I would feel very shameful and guilty about. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd want to add that perhaps we, there is such a massive topic? I appreciate we've left yeah. most of it on the cutting room floor, but is there anything else you'd want to? <laughs> this is going to sound very self-interested, but I, I really love the fact that you said you picked the book up, even though it's not something that you would normally pick up. Mm -hmm. If anybody picks up this book and they feel like they could pass once they've read it, pass it on to somebody who mm -hmm. would say, "Oh, I wouldn't ever read a book on climate change." Encourage them. Mm. read it because hopefully yeah. it's a readable accessible book about human beings and how we respond to crisis and how we can mm. um how we can bring out the best of humanity to meet the challenge ahead yeah it was a very gentle book i really appreciated that i wasn't expecting that and i was expecting to get growled at and it was really great to read the <laughs> book that i felt okay i can hear this and not feel judged i really appreciated the tone and the timber of the book and the way you made it very accessible. Where would where would you suggest people go for resources other than getting your book? Have to yeah, work well, actually at the back you want to send people? Well, actually at the back of the book, I include a whole lot of resources. So okay. really good podcasts, movies and websites. But if you wanted to go um, anywhere, a lot of the all around mm. the world, a lot of the cycle, a lot of the um, professional health and mental health professions 
have, re have released reports or guides about how to talk about climate and how to manage your anxiety around climate. And particularly if you've got somebody in your life, a child or a teen who's really worried about climate change mm. and maybe spends a lot of time yelling at grandma, grandpa about <laughs> climate change or saying things like that, that young person said to you, they're, they're really effective, really effective resources written by health, um, mental health professionals about mm. how to think about the issue, talk about the issue and manage the issue personally. Mm. All right. Thank you so much, Ruby. It's been such a pleasure. I'm so grateful you came right. on board. All the best with your book and well done Thanks. getting it written. I understand it was a very much a personal journey. So congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Oh, you're, you're so welcome.